One of the main things that I loved about people sharing their experiences of reading this book is that we, we still, we don't culturally want to talk about difficult things. We like things to be shiny, especially in American culture, very shiny, very fast, very pretty. That's not what the meat and bones of life is about. And it, it leads to a very isolating, sheltered kind of feeling when we go through challenges. And I felt so desperate to connect with people. And I could sense that even close friends just didn't know how to handle it. So oftentimes people just don't say anything. That just furthers the isolation and it and it 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 makes one feel as though their feelings aren't legitimized or they should be better. I should be over this by now. And you know, we just have to go through things as a step-by-step, really. Hi, it's Kanika, and I'm back with another season of That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast, where I interview parenting experts, global thought leaders, best-selling authors, and trailblazing entrepreneurs on their incredible life stories, their mom sense and dad sense experiences, and the values and legacy they're passing on to their children. Hi, I'm Gabby Bernstein, and you're listening to me on That's Total Mom Sense. It's me, Bobby Brown, on Total Mom Sense. Can't wait to share my story. Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa, and you're listening to me on That's Total Mom Sense. These episodes will inspire you to make every single day count. Episodes release every Thursday. Join my tribe by logging on to thatstotalmomsense.com, where you'll receive my free Parenting in a Pandemic guidebook and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. Today's show isn't just whatever, it's kind of a big deal. And if you don't feel like listening as if, okay, it's going to be bewildering leaving you bewitched. I'll stop with the innuendos now, but I am fully fanning out today because I have Elisa Donovan with me on That's Total Mom Sense. For over 20 years, Elisa Donovan has been a major part of pop culture. She began her film career when she played the role of Amber in the iconic comedy Clueless. She later starred in the TV series Beverly Hills 90210, playing bad girl Ginger LaMonica. She then went on to reprise her role of Amber for three seasons on the TV series of Clueless, during which time she shot the Paramount SNL films comedy A Night at the Roxbury. Then for three seasons, Elisa played Morgan Cavanaugh on the monster hit series, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Elisa was also the star and co-producer of the NBC comedy web series in Gale We Trust, created and written by Brent Forrester of The Office, which was an unprecedented success for the network, garnering over 35 million views. Elisa was voted reader favorite as a celebrity mom blogger for people.com and was hand-selected by Sheryl Sandberg to be the voice for her number one bestsellers, Lean In and Option B, the audiobook. Elisa's first book, Wake Me When You Leave, released in the wake of the pandemic in 2020, which is her personal memoir where she opens up about loss and grief and how she made it through. The film is currently in development with Richard J. Bosner producing, and this marks Lisa's screenwriting and directorial debuts. 
In addition to her entertainment career, Elisa supports women struggling with eating disorders and is a proponent of spreading awareness and recovery. She has had pieces published in the Chicken Soup for the Soul series, and her story has been featured in the book Feeding the Fame and documented for teen people. Elisa has spoken about recovery on many TV shows, including 2020, Entertainment Tonight, Access Hollywood, and Dr. Drew's Headline News. Originally from Northport, Long Island, Elisa grew up studying acting, writing, and photography. She was also a competitive equestrian. She graduated from Eugene Lang College at the New School University in New York, where she studied dramatic literature, acting, and writing. She now lives in San Francisco with her husband and daughter. Elisa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Tell us a bit about your childhood. So I grew up on Long Island, which is just outside of New York City in New York. And I had a very traditional, conventional family, older brother and older sister. Both of my parents were together. My dad was an executive for AT&T. So he worked a lot in the city, wasn't home that much. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. I grew up as really the only creative or outwardly creative person in my family. So I was kind of the outlier, always needing to express myself and always wanting to put on plays and write stories. And I think both my brother and sister had some of those tendencies. My my brother and I would put a lot of the plays on together, but I really was the only one who it was kind of their life force. You know, that was my, I knew from a very young age that that was something that, that really resonated with me and that I was meant to be doing. And, you know, would your parents take you on auditions? Were they really supportive of your journey through acting? I mean, my dad thought it was just a hobby growing up. Certainly my mom was always very supportive and I didn't start actually auditioning professionally until I was 17. I think I'm 10th or 11th grade. So around 17. And so my mom would take the train into the city with me and go on auditions. And at that point it was really for commercials and things like that. And um, so she was very, very supportive. And my dad was as well until he at a certain point thought, well, you're, you know, you, you need to go to college. And I always wanted to go to college and I did, but right out of high school, I didn't want to, I wanted to be an actress. And that meant not taking a detour of going to, I was going to go to NYU to Tisch school and you are not allowed to audition for the first two years. And at the time that felt to me like a step backwards. And so I wanted to take a year off and go to an acting studio full-time and then went to the new school for social research, which didn't have any, um, the new school university didn't have any criteria that you could not be working outside of school. So yeah, they were supportive, but again, my dad didn't really understand what, you know, he was very conventional and didn't really understand the the path I was on and how vehemently it was a part. It was in the fabric of my being. I wasn't meant to be a lawyer, although my mom always still tells me that I would would have been a very good lawyer because Mm -hmm. I would argue my case from the time I was five years old. (laughs) That's great. Oh, I love it. And I mean, you're such a natural on screen. Uh, It's a joy to watch you. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And I feel like 
I mean, I'm 39. I still have such great memories of Clueless. It was just Mm -hmm. this phenomenon. Tell us a little bit about what it was like on set with Alicia and Stacey and Donald and Paul Rudd. Like, what was it like? We were all very young. And uh, I think everybody just wanted to do the best job that we could do. But it was it was exciting because it did feel really magical. It felt, and I, it's hard for me to, to tell whether or not that was because I, it was the first big film I had ever done, or, you know, there were, it's kind of a, a whole host of things that were happening, but I think that that kind of magic, you can feel it. It just that everything was right. Everyone was very well cast. The script was phenomenal. Everything from wardrobe to set deck to, uh, just everything was, was really perfection. And I think that that's, that's what always makes a great project is when all of the pieces come together and everybody is operating at their, at their highest level. And then you get this product that just is truly a, a, you know, creative community project where everyone's piece of the puzzle matters. Um, and moving on to another cult classic, which was uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And, um, you know, dating back, uh, I still remember watching it on TGIF. Like that was ritual for us. It was pizza, TGIF and, and Sabrina. What were like those memories like for you? That set was really like a family. And I think that's because Melissa is from a big family and her mom was the executive producer and they welcomed everyone and had really fun holiday parties and did things that that really brought everyone together. She, I just love Melissa. She's just a sweetheart. She's such a hard worker. She's really smart and she's super down to earth. And all of those things are incredibly rare to find yeah. in a person who truly has grown up in front of the camera like she has you know, she has been in the business since she was very, very young. Now, when it rains, it pours. And this is exactly how you started your book, Wake Me When You Leave. And it it begins with this thunderstorm. Was that intentional to be a metaphor? So that's so interesting you ask that because that chapter that the, which is now, I guess the prologue, we made it, it, that moved around in all different places in the book. I had such a hard time deciding where to put it. And I knew that it was super important because it really set the tone for that, that father daughter relationship and the, how much I looked up to him and how he was such a source of support and any, I kept moving it. And then, and and my editor said to me, you know, we're going to find out we're, we're going to figure out where this goes. Like we're, it's, it's wonderful. And it's staying we haven't quite figured it out yet. And then really in the last revision, I went, I think it just needs to go at the beginning, but I didn't want to start the book like chapter one, because I felt as though the tone of it was really kind of rhythmic and, and slower and more dreamlike. And I wanted the book to start more quickly, kind of with a, a, a faster energy. So then uh, she, we said, let's just part, let's put it at the very beginning. The short answer is no, I didn't necessarily think that at the time, but I do feel as though that is the right place now because it works in so many, so many ways that it is like starting the storm. 
Yeah, it really set the stage. And the storm that ensued was, you know, you you had found out, um, you know, the earth shattering news that your father had cancer. Mm-hmm. Your agent called you to tell you um, very nonchalantly that Sabrina was canceled and you were without a job and your then boyfriend uh, broke up with you at the time. So mm-hmm. it's just all of it could have felt like this um, crashing down, you know, of, of like circumstances on you. Um, <laughs> yeah. How, how did you muster up the courage and resilience to to get over each challenge. You know, when these things happen, we feel so isolated and then it, it feels insurmountable. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was a lot of time where I just felt as though I was floating in this half-life where I didn't know where I was going and what I was doing. And I kind of wanted, so, you know, you just want someone to tell you what to do or someone to swoop down and fix it there's no magic answer. It's actually really just going through the grief and acknowledging what's happening, you know? And I think one of the main things that I, that I've loved about people sharing their experiences of reading this book is that we, we still, we don't culturally want to talk about difficult things. We like things to be shiny, especially in American culture, very shiny, very fast, very pretty. That's not what the meat and bones of life is about. And it, it leads to a very isolating, sheltered kind of feeling when we go through challenges. And I felt so desperate to connect with people. And I could sense that even close friends just didn't know how to handle it. So oftentimes people just don't say anything. That just furthers the isolation and it, and it, it, it makes one feel as though their feelings aren't legitimized or they should be better. I should be over this by now. And, you know, we just have to go through things as a step-by-step really. I I feel like there's nothing that can prepare you for the loss of a parent. What, how did you find solace when, when your dad passed away? He started to come to me in these dreams and that was incredibly healing but that was kind of further down the line. And I think how I started to, to find some, some peace is knowing that his spirit is still alive, that when someone dies, they, they never really leave us. And Mm. that is a pretty profound thing to actually metabolize. (laughs) And so while it doesn't mean that he's here and that I can call him up or, you know, ask his advice or tell him, but, but at the same time, I can still talk to him and we get to share the experience of, of what they, what, what our loved ones have taught us, what they've given us. You know, I get to see in my daughter, I know, I mean, that's a whole other story. I am certain that my daughter talks to my dad and sees my dad. I know they are uh, buddies. And I asked her, I asked her once kids are just so much closer to that spiritual nature of things. They don't have the, the filter of life telling us these things aren't real or they don't matter. And so she did so many things when she was very, very small that were proof to me that she was, that, that my dad was connected to her. And that's kind of how peace comes in pieces. I think, you know, it doesn't come all at one time. And 
And, and again, we want, I think these simple solutions or, okay, do this and you're going to be fine in six months, you know, but there isn't, there is no recipe like that for grief. And it's, it really ebbs and flows and, and it's different for everyone. But I think the single, if I had to say one thing, I would say to just, uh, just allowing myself to be sad and allowing myself to appreciate the good and the bad, allowing myself to be angry about what I felt I didn't get from him, Mm -hmm. uh, allowing myself to feel, to really feel the loss. It seems as though, oh, if, if I, if I let myself go down that hole, I'm just never going to come out. I'll just be sad for the rest of my life. That's not really the case. It's, it's that we have to, to feel that in order to move through and move, move beyond. Yes. Yes. You are extremely clairvoyant and really know how to tap into your intuitive energy as does your daughter. Was this something that you've always possessed or did it get stronger? You know, when your dad visited you in his dreams, I've always had an awareness of this kind of thing, but when I was younger, never being able to, to put a, put words to it or have any kind of real foundation for acknowledging it or, or managing it. Absolutely. This experience was a spiritual experience for me. And that term is sometimes really annoying to hear all of these things happening in the close succession that they did stripped away all of these things that I thought made up who I am, my -hmm. exterior, my job, my boyfriend, the way my life looked, all of these things. And they were all stripped away and I had to rebuild and really understand who I am. And part of that was realizing it isn't just this physical world that we, that, that we exist in. And I think the sadness really opened myself up to receiving any kind of help that I could have. That's Mm -hmm. kind of, I think was, was a really big part of it that I felt so open to receiving any kind of care the more physical reality things that could help at the time didn't really. And so it certainly developed more when with my dad passing without a doubt and these dreams. And then I started to really tap into doing more work with my dreams and in my creative life, incorporating dreams into my work. And I started to do a lot of research on Carl Jung's philosophies of dreams and that psychology. And I just started to incorporate that more into my life. And then these, the veils, if you will, between the two worlds really started to just fade away. And you see how there is this tremendous connection between there and here. And Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful thing. And it can be a little bit disarming, I guess, at first I was going to say scary, but it it was a a little, it was a little bit scary at first. And part of that was realizing, oh, if he is communicating with me, he really is gone. You know, he, he really has died. So there was some acceptance that I had to make of if I'm getting these kinds of signs, this is really the final acceptance that he's not with us in this physical world anymore. So that was part of the grief process also, the, a kind of closure. But within that closure came this huge opening up of an even greater 
connection to him, you know, and even an even closer relationship, which is something that I never would have anticipated. You also openly share your journey with anorexia. And when it got really bad, you were hospitalized. And this was around the time that you were filming Clueless. But just raising young kids in this day and age is really scary. I mean, just the social media, the... Um, the scrutiny, the the fact that everything is touched up and photoshopped and yes. not real. And so they have even more of this like skewed lens of what beauty mm-hmm. is and it's awful. How do you hope to like support young kids um, like our daughters, especially yes. how to navigate all this? Yes, there. Th- this is something that I can give actual specific ways that I handle things with her. Number one, I make a habit of never commenting or complimenting her appearance or her friend's appearances. In other words, you look so pretty today. I love your, I love your dress or I love your, your shirt and look at your pretty hair. I never say any of those things. Yeah. And and then people might think, oh, that's so mean. No, I talk about other things about her. Wow, I love how interested you are in this movie. I love how, what do you love about this book? Oh my gosh, you're such, you you work so hard on this and you played so well today. You know, my daughter happens to be very athletic. She is thankfully not interested in, you know, dresses and things that are, but she is not interested in her appearance in that way. And that relates me. (laughs) Yes. Priorities. Priorities. I don't know for how long that will be, but she doesn't. And I just always, I ask her about how she's feeling about what she thinks about things. Mm. I just keep it interior rather than exterior. And there are things little girl, she has said to me already in the last couple of years, she said, and she's nine, she turned uh, nine in May. Mm-hmm. She said, why is my belly so fat in the shower? She said yeah. this. And I realized in this moment, we had just eaten dinner and she just ate. And I said, well, you just ate, it's your belly's not fat. It's just, it's full. You just ate. Oh, what are, and I said, you know, it would be strange if you ate and then your body did you, your body, you know, you eat and you digest it. And then you'll notice in a couple of hours, it won't look that way. And I just try to be very logical and non-emotional about anything about the body, because as a, you know, a person who had an eating disorder, it's terrifying when you hear your child say, why is my belly fat? But I realized she's not saying, I don't need to put something on it that she is not putting on it. Right. She wasn't going, I feel terrible. I'm fat. I need to not be, no, that's not what she was saying. She was making an observation about her body rather than letting her come to her own conclusions. I just try to be very direct about these things. You can see already your kids being three and four, and you'll just see it more and more and more how they are literally just observing everything that you do. And then they start to mirror things that you, you do. It's just as important that we don't judge ourselves and talk about ourselves in a negative way with, with regard to appearance or body or food or eating, you know, it's the same thing with food. My, my daughter is not a great eater. She doesn't 
She's kind of a grazer, eats little, she eats like four things total in life. Mm -hmm. We're trying (laughs) to expand them, but I have to try not to judge what she's eating and just encourage her and say, you know, the reason you want to eat these things, it makes your body strong. If you, and it's, and it's helpful that she's athletic because I can say, if you want to become stronger, eating more vegetables and protein is a good idea, you know, yeah, but yeah. I try to keep it about nutrition and there are no good foods or bad foods or, you know, sweets and those kinds of things are, are challenging to navigate because I don't like to give them too much credit or too much weight. So uh, we, I, I allow her to have a sweet, we don't do candy and things like that, but yeah. you know, ice cream or whatever it might be. It, I try not to use those things as treats, like yes. as, reward. as rewards. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do something else as a reward, but sure. Yeah. If she wants to have ice cream is fun in the summer, it's hot, but you know, it, it's a, we try to make it kind of situational and enjoyable or about nutrition and not with any kind of emotional association to it. Um, now tell us about your your husband and how he is as um, a partner and team player in raising your little one. He's incredibly, incredibly supportive. He is very involved as much as he can be with our daughter. He works in finance and works East Coast market hours. And so he's up super early oh. and, but then is finished early. So he gets to really be in her life in the afternoons and evenings and we are very much 50-50 partners. My schedule is often more flexible, but then when it isn't, it is not flexible at all. Right. You know, right. if I'm on location, I'm away yeah. doing something, yes. And, you know, kind of doing all this, the promotion for the book and uh, and writing the book for that matter during the pandemic, which was, <laughs> my goodness. I can't even imagine. I mean, you're homeschooling <laughs> your little one. You know, yes. You're editing your book. And it's it was, just cr- like, it was oh. bananas. It was wow. completely bananas, I will say. But so that was extraordinarily challenging, but we really uh, try to balance it out. He is very much a, a partner in that way and will adjust his schedule whenever he can. And we both do that. And my daughter feels very much like she has two parents, you know, who are, who are both involved. And for a long time, she always thought, you know, she didn't know that I was an actress and she didn't know any of those things. And, you know, the last few years I've been focusing more on the book and getting the film made and writing. So I haven't been doing as much out, you know, actual acting where I have to leave town. So once she discovered she had a friend in preschool come home from a trip once and they saw, I I think one of, I did this series of movies with talking dogs, these family movies. And I, the, one of her friends saw one of them on the airplane and came in and said, Scarlett's mom is a movie star, you know, to the whole preschool. And all the kids were like, what? And my daughter said, what? No, she's not. What are you talking about? And then Yeah. Then it opened up this conversation of it. That's what I do. But for a certain time, then after that, she just thought, oh, if you want to be in movies, you just, you just don't, you you just are, you know, because she looked at me and I was home and then, you know, and taking her to school. And then I thought, oh, wait a second. She needs to understand that this is not, and she, she would keep asking me while the film has been in development. Didn't you make that movie yet? Is it already, you know, and let's say, no, Scarlett, it takes a while. You have to develop it and then you have to get the financing and then you have to get the people, you know, writing of the book was the first time that she saw, oh, mommy works in a way where I can't just kind of hang out and be with her. 
you know? And so that was a big adjustment for her also. So is there a moment in time that you like, remember you trusted your mom says she has anxiety, our daughter. And part of it, I actually think comes from her connectedness to other, to kind of what's going on on a lot of levels, but she, she also had uh, this accident at school. just a freak accident. She tripped and hit her head on this exterior uh, pole that cracked her head open, needed stitches all the way to her skull. It was very, very dramatic. And it happened at pickup. They had to have an ambulance and all of the girls, she goes to an all girl school, K through eight. And the entire school was there. It was just, it was extremely dramatic and very traumatic for her. And then after that, her anxiety really kind of went through the roof about everything, you know, that, that she wanted to, she was afraid she's going to get sick and all of these things. So in terms of me knowing, you know, there are times where she'll say, I I know that she needs to talk about her feelings about what's happening. And there have been moments where my husband will say, it's fine. She's fine. She's just, you know, being overly dramatic or this is fine. And I'll look at her and I know the difference between, oh, I'm going to, she's going to throw a fit because she doesn't want to do whatever it may be. And when she is actually really struggling and Mm. that thing I am navigating all of the time. And so I will usually take her aside and just, again, ask her what she's feeling. And then if we, if you ask them and they tell you, sometimes it's really scary. You know, she will say, I'm afraid that I'm going to get sick. I don't want to go. I don't want to go to school. And she, and she has this spiral in her mind. And then I have to say, that's just your brain. And it's really working overtime. And we are all going to get sick at some point again, and then we're going to get well. We can't fix it for them. You know, there's this fine line of, I believe of, of, of comforting them and supporting them, but also allowing them to feel uncomfortable and know that not everything gets tied up in a bow and it doesn't, it doesn't get fixed. We can't fix it for them, even though we want to. Let's not forget our quote of the day. Is there a quote that you live by? I love, well, the opening of the book, I love that groomy quote. It says, the wound is the place where the light enters you. And I think that is a great thing to remember. Yes, yes. It's where healing and growth mm-hmm. come from. It's now time for Mom Hall, when we share products we love. Mom Hall, fun segment where you can share any product or gadget or really anything that you are loving right now that you want the audience to know about? Oh, I just got these new hair vitamins that I'm really loving. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Tell us about it. <laughs> They're, it's called Ulu, U-L-U. Okay. Hair, skin, and nail. And I've taken things over the years. And for whatever reason, I think it's probably when it has too much of one thing, they often they'll make you break out or have like weird things that doesn't actually do what you need them to do. And I've only been taking them a couple of weeks and I have no negative reaction. And I feel like my hair is getting thicker and my skin is feeling better. So I'm into those. That's (laughs) awesome. I mean, you look radiant, so... Yeah, I'm going to get some Ulu. (laughs) Awesome. And um, where can my listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at 
Red Donovan and on Facebook at Elisa Donovan. They all have the little blue check marks, so you can tell it's me. And I also have a website, elisa-donovan.com. Great. And your book, your book. Yes. And you can get my book anywhere where you get books, <laughs> at, uh, Barnes and Noble, at bookstores, at Amazon. Goodreads has a great you know, list of where you can, links to where you can get them. And the audio book is also available everywhere. Oh, that's so great. Elisa, you are a light. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And like I said in the beginning, we all are going to encounter some sort of grief or loss in our life at every point of our life. And the way that you have overcome it with such grace and acceptance and resilience is something that I look up to. And I know my listeners do too. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kanika. This has been really lovely. You're terrific. Thank you. How fun was today's interview? Alisa, you are a gem. Thanks so much for sharing your life story and allowing us to do a deep dive into your childhood, your career, your motherhood experience, and the life lessons you've learned along the way. A big, big hug to Icon PR and the entire team. Thank you, Heather, for making this chat happen. Tune in to other episodes of That Total Mom Sense, and you can browse my YouTube channel where I post highlights from our interviews when you just type in That Total Mom Sense in YouTube. Follow me on Instagram at Kanika Chada Gupta, and you can watch my IG Live with Elisa where we share some new tidbits and snippets that were super fun. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to That Total Mom Sense, the podcast, wherever you listen. Remember, always trust your mom sense and dad sense. Stay strong, super parents. That's Total Mom Sense.